Proverbs 25. Um, I look back in our last lesson, uh, at least according to my records, was November the 8th. Um, we stopped and that month because of uh, the holidays. Um, do what? An extra Bible for the pastor's wife. <laughs> So uh, my records show that we more or less got through 24. I at least read all of 24 to you, and we talked about uh, a little bit of it. Uh, so we'll pick up in uh, 25. And I'm reminded of this book sitting in front of me. Uh, it just came in today. Uh, I have two copies. If anybody would like to borrow one, uh, that's fine. I could loan out both of them if need be. But it's by uh, an OPC pastor in... In Denver, Denver, Colorado. He served in the Air Force. Da, 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 da. His name's Sean Mathis. I've known him online for several years, but it's basically a response to all the sexual issues that are going on in the church. And his title is, Is the Church Pro-Gay? And the subtitle is, How to Respond to a Moral Crisis with God's Love. And, uh, it is anything but soft from what I know about this guy. And uh, he also doesn't shy away from calling out people who have uh, brought shame on the name of Christ who should know better. Anyway, yeah, I'll have those. Uh, if you'd like one, uh, please let me know. You can borrow it. It'll be in the church library. Uh, but you're welcome to borrow it, of course. So Proverbs 25, I'll read the first uh, 10 verses. And then we will begin our discussion. It says, These are also Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied out. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. The heaven for height and the earth for depth and the heart of kings is unsearchable. Take away the dross from the silver, and there shall come forth a vessel for the finer, or the refiner. Take away the wicked from before the king, and his throne shall be established in righteousness. Put not forth thyself in the presence of the king, and stand not in the place of great men. For better it is that it be said unto thee, Come up hither, than that thou shouldest be put lower in the presence of the prince whom thine eyes have seen. Go not forth hastily to strive, lest thou know not what to do in the end thereof, when thy neighbor hath put thee to shame. Debate thy cause with thy neighbor himself, and discover or uncover or reveal not a secret to another, lest he that heareth it put thee to shame, and thine infamy turn not away. Amen. 
All right, so uh, if we wanted to divide uh, this section up, there's uh, a few ways to do it, but the way I'm going to look at it is uh, verses 1 to 3, and then verses 4 to 7, and then verses 8 to 10, uh, time permitting. So verses 1 to 3 uh, speaks about uh, kings in the middle, but the, uh, the first verse there is, a, is, is not really a proverb at all, is it? Right? It's a statement about the Proverbs that are about to follow, that these that are to come from chapter 25 onward are indeed Proverbs of Solomon as well. And this tells you that uh, the way that the book of Proverbs, um, like probably other books, books in Scripture, it was not simply uh, the case that Solomon sat down and wrote out all of them that they were compiled over uh, different times, that they were put together in the Lord's providence. Um, So it seems, uh, based on the way this reads here, that Solomon's Proverbs had been kept and then that these became part of what was already basically a standing tradition of the book of Proverbs. And then it uh, became codified as Scripture uh, somewhere along that point. But notice that it's attributed to uh, not Solomon and his sons, but the men of King Hezekiah, right? whom we read about uh, in the Old Testament as uh, one of the righteous kings. He was uh, the king of Judah. Remember, you have the division of um, Israel at a certain point where you have the division between the north and the south. Sound familiar? Um, uh, Israel was in the north and uh, Judah was in the south. Uh, one way you can remember that is I comes before J, right? I is on top of J. If you're working uh, chronologically, at least that's how I remember it. Uh, that way I can remember which kingdoms were in the north and which were in the south. And then David obviously was uh, from uh, the southern kingdoms. Uh, but anyway, uh, it's important to note when you, when you think about this, um, kind of the complication of how uh, the Proverbs were compiled because I think based on the way the Bible is given to us, like, you know, you receive a Bible, you just kind of think that every book was written like a chapter book, you know, that the author sat down and wrote it all. But when you have the book of Proverbs here, you've got these different periods in history where they're being put together. And so we're entering this section here that uh, the Lord wanted you to know that uh, this wasn't um, compiled necessarily the way that uh, the rest of the book had been compiled. Um, let's see. Uh, let me read a little quote here from Bridges. Uh, if you ever want to borrow this, this commentary, and the reason I offer you to borrow it is because if you want to buy it, the cheapest you can find it is like $60. Uh, it's out of print. Uh, if you want a new copy, it's going to cost you about $140. Uh, I found this, I think, for like $30 or $40 a few years ago. Uh, but as we know, everything's more expensive now. Uh, but if you want to buy it, I have it on my, my computer, so I don't need the hard copy when I do this study. Uh, it's the best thing I've read on Proverbs. But he says this about this section, speaking to verse 1 here, about how we're entering a new section and Hezekiah's men wrote it and whatnot. He says, this seems to be a third division of this sacred book. So we're entering part 3 of Proverbs. The selection was probably made with several repetitions from the former part, from the, quote, 
3,000 Proverbs, which Solomon spoke, and which, having been carefully preserved, the men of Hezekiah copied out. So think in a similar way that we have the rest of Scripture preserved through history is through men copying it, right? There's not just one Bible floating through history that everybody shares. God and His sovereign uh, providence and wisdom guides men to make uh, copies, and it's a similar idea here. But this, uh, these men of Hezekiah, they lived about 300 years after Solomon. Right? So that's a, quite a significant period of time. You're thinking about these Proverbs of Solomon uh, being preserved and then copied into what was known as Solomon's Proverbs. He says, Thus the word of God brought out of obscurity for the instruction of the people stamped the reformation of this godly king, Second Chronicles 31, as it did the reformation of Josiah in after times. He's just saying that other parts of Scripture were written the same way. But then he says this, and I thought this was interesting, because we've been talking some in our, in our sermons and in Sunday school about how the New Testament and Old Testament relate together. But there are places where the New Testament quotes directly from the book of Proverbs to prove that the apostles and those who wrote Scripture in the New Testament understood the book of Proverbs to be part of the Old Testament. Now, that's not something that we question, right? Because we, we're all in here. I think we believe that all 66 books are part of the Bible, but it's, it's still interesting to, uh, to think about. He says, we're not reading, therefore, the maxims of the wisest of men, right? So Solomon's not just a man, but we are reading the voice from heaven, which proclaims these are the true sayings of God. All right? And then he says... Uh, I think this is important, something we could deduce something very practical out of, that the Holy Spirit mentions not only the author, but the copyist of these Proverbs, right? Because it could have been just as easy uh, to say these are more Proverbs of Solomon. But he says these are also Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied out, right? Very, we don't have their names, right? We just know who they worked for basically. And he says uh, how, um, how the world usually honors only the grand instruments, right? The world would usually only mention Solomon and cast the humbler agency into the shade. But God honors not only the primary, but the subordinate instruments, the lowly instruments, not only the five, but the one talent faithfully laid out for him. The blessing is not promised to their number, but to their improvement. He's drawing on the parable of the talents from Matthew 25, where God, uh, where Christ speaks of those who had more talents, who acquired more talents, right? They, they equated uh, what they had been given. In, but even the man who only had one, when he brought back another one, was praised by the Lord Jesus. And I think this, is a, this should be a tremendous encouragement to us in our good works that we think go unnoticed because even God notices, right? Even though our names may never end up in a book, even though we might just be the copyists of these great things, God takes notice of us. But then in verse 2, it's the glory of God to conceal a thing, right? That's, that's quite a concept. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, right? You ever think about how often you ask why God is doing something? Or you wonder at that. And this proverb would tell you that you're bumping up into his glory. 
It is his glory to conceal things, not to reveal everything. But it is the honor of kings to search out a matter. And remember, Solomon is speaking chiefly to his sons here, who were kings to be, basically. Um, so he's saying that your place uh, one day will be uh, the place of searching out a matter. But also, um, because we read Proverbs as training for us as well, and the fact that uh, in Revelation 1, the Lord says that we have been made kings and priests of God Most High through Jesus Christ, we see ourselves in this. Right? Yes, it is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but it is an honor to us when we search out matters, when we study things. I think you could draw a very practical implication from this in just studying the Bible, right? That it is our honor to do that, to search out matters in God's Word. And you know, you know that it's not like you really know it in the moment, but you kind of know it afterwards where you cross over from just reading the Bible to studying it, right? And there's a difference in that um, that experience right, that you you feel right? that's when you're bumping into this this honor that it belongs to kings to search out a matter whether it be the heaven the earth or the heart um let's see let me move on to verses four to seven i don't have a ton of time here um but in verses four to seven he's talking uh, more about uh, kings, but he's drawing on this idea in verse 4 about taking away the dross from the silver. And basically what dross is, is the part of the silver that needs to be removed, right? The, um, uh, there's a hymn that uses some line to that effect, but uh, in, I believe it's First Peter, where it speaks of our faith being refined uh, by the fire, like gold that is being purified. But here, the image is silver that's being purified. And it says, there shall come forth a vessel for the refiner that God uh, works through um, these various things. But what he's talking about here, in particular, what he's calling the dross, or that which needs to be done away with, is the wicked in a nation. Right? Because notice he connects it to Verse 4 is about the dross from the silver. Verse 5, it literally begins the same way. Right? Take away the dross, verse 4. Verse 5, take away the wicked. Right? So it's the same concept, but he's giving you an image or an, something like an allegory, as it were, in verse 4, but giving you the specific application to show what he's talking about here in verse 5. He's talking about the way that kings are to rule things or Discipline in the presence of kings is being brought forth as well. Take away the wicked from before the king, right? So if you remove the wicked from before a king, Solomon says, then the king's throne shall be established in righteousness. Sometimes establishing righteousness requires a purging. It always requires discipline and examination of those things that are in front of the king's. Um, but I think we could draw an implication from this to ourselves as individuals, uh, to our homes broadly, to kingdoms, as he applies it to, and even to churches, right? As far as individuals go, we know that there is dross in our life that the Lord is seeking to remove, right? So that a 
reign, as it were, of righteousness could be established in our hearts. Right? But even in, in a home, right, there are things in every home that need to be removed, that God is seeking to, uh, through his refining fire, have burned away so that righteousness could be established. Certainly this is the case in kingdoms, right? Um, you know, we don't live in a world where people often think of nations and kingdoms this way, I think because most nations and kingdoms are so ungodly now. Um, not that that's new, uh, but we lack um, a reflection of Christian leaders uh, very much in our age. And we fail to see how these things are indeed possible. But the Lord tells us how they're possible if the wicked are removed from before the king. Now, the wicked can be removed in, in any number of ways. In the past, you know, you could see uh, different types of persecutions, right? Persecutions or um, valid uh, prosecutions, as it were, uh, where the kings, whether they were right or wrong, were seeking to have the wicked removed from before them. They were, because they were trying to establish their kingdom in a certain way. Now we have a debate over whether the death penalty is even a valid thing. Right? When in the past, you could argue that the ditch was on the other side, right? that they were more eager to, <laughs> too eager to kill and put people to death. Uh, but this could even be applied to churches, um, and, and things like church discipline comes to mind where those who are the dross among the church, when they rise to the top, when they become evident, they have to be driven from before the king. But who's the king of the church? It's the Lord Jesus, right? And he does that work. He does it through his word. He does it through uh, his, his ministers, uh, elders, um, and all those things, where God works that out to establish the throne of Christ in righteousness in his church. Because we know it's that way in heaven, Right? where Christ's righteousness is most fully known. There is no dross there. But the earth, especially the church on the earth, is meant to reflect heaven as much as possible. When we pray in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Right? So we put into practice trying to uh, bring about this righteousness. Um, then in uh, verses... Uh, let's see, yeah, verse 6 and 7, it speaks, um, let's see, how can I draw this together? You know the parable uh, that Christ gives in Luke 14, verses 7 to 11? We don't really have time to work through it or I'd turn there. Uh, but in Luke 14, verses 7 to 11, where Christ gives the parable about the man entering without a garment, right? He enters in with presumption, basically, and then he's cast out. Am I confusing the parables? You're looking at me funny. Yeah, no, I was thinking about the one where he has been sitting in a lovely place, and then the master said, Friend, come up here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess I'm going to turn there. So, uh, yeah, you're right. Sorry. You're right. I was, it has the same application. But you're right. Uh, I was drawing on the wrong parable. Uh, There's a reference to Luke 14. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think the reference is right. I was just confusing which parable it was. Um, but uh, speaks to this parable about being invited to a wedding and not sitting down in the wrong place. 
basically. And that's a picture of heaven, the heavenly banquet, the heavenly wedding of, of Christ and his bride, and how verse 6 and 7 are a reflection of that, that, that when you come into the presence of the king, you don't put forth yourself, right? You don't assume your seat. And uh, just as we would, you know, if we were going to dine with a king of the earth, right? You don't walk in and just take whatever seat you want, right? You come in with humility because it's better to be said of you, no, 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 move up here. It's okay. Come up here. Than it is to say, go sit over there, right? You know how <laughs> kind of a, a childish application of this, but like when you have uh, people over for dinner or something like that and your kids like think that they're going to take the place of the guests because that's where they always sit or something to that effect. And you're like, no, no, go, go sit over there. Right? It's a similar idea there. Uh, maybe you just need a bigger table. Um, but the principle is, is the same. Um, it's better to have someone tell you to come up rather than to have that person put you lower uh, than your eyes imagine yourself to be. Uh, and then in verses 8 through 10, um, uh, if you're, you know, got a, a mind filled with Scripture, maybe you're thinking of uh, 1 Corinthians here, uh, where Paul talks about not going to um, pursue civil lawsuits with uh, fellow believers, um, or how Christ says uh, something to the effect in Matthew 5 to be reconciling. But notice the very direct uh principles that are given here. It says, go not forth hastily to strive. That means like, don't rush into a situation to debate is the word there, right? But it's, it's got legal connotations because we're talking about kings. kings. And it says, lest thou know not what to do in the end, right? Because if you're not prepared for that interaction, you're going to be faced in a situation where you don't know what to do. You don't know what to say, right? Because your neighbor, maybe he's more prepared, and he's going to be uh, one who puts you to shame. And he says, debate thy cause with thy neighbor himself, meaning don't let it get that far where you have to rush into that public debate or that public sphere of civil interaction. And remember, again, this is drawing on, or Christ is drawing on this imagery when he talks about reconciling with your brother, right, before these kind of things become necessary. And, and then it says, discover not a secret uh, to another. Um, and that, that brings up um, one of the more uh, interesting applications in the catechism of uh, thou shalt not lie uh, or bear false witness. And it talks about speaking the truth unseasonably. Um, and that means that there are improper times to say certain things. That doesn't mean that it's ever proper to say the wrong thing necessarily, right? But it does mean that there are improper times to say certain things, even if they're true, right? And you can think about conversations that you've had with people where they say something that's true, but they just say it at the worst time, right? Everybody knows you have that conversation with your spouse. You're like, right now, right? And I'm normally the one doing that, right? I normally have to put my foot in my mouth. <laughs> or I normally do put my foot in my mouth. But it's just like those, those interactions where you feel that in the moment, like that was true, but that was not the right time to say it, right? 
And those kind of things are even addressed here in Scripture. Um, <clears throat> because the person who hears that could be one who puts you to shame, and your infamy, your, your shame, as it were, would not uh, turn away. You would continue to bear it, even though you're seeking to do uh, the right thing. Uh, so that gives us 10 minutes or so for discussion. I, I know I rushed through that kind of quick, but I wanted to get through all 10 verses. Uh, any thoughts, uh, questions? Um, if not, I can work through some more applications, but yeah. Yeah, and you also have the scene with Josiah where the Bible's recovered, and he's like, is this the Bible? Like, is this the Word of God? Like, this is what I haven't heard? That kind of thing. When he finally hears it, it's like, this is what it is? They were supposed to take it down and copy it for themselves. Yeah. And that kind of... Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you see immediately uh, the individual application to that to our day, right? Because... In the Lord's providence, we live in a time where everybody has Bibles, right? And we should never enter a season in our lives where we're like, is that what the Bible says? Right? I forgot that. Like, that kind of thing. Or that has been suppressed from me, you know? Yeah. Any others? Yeah. Come up here, it's better for you to be told to come up here than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. Mm -hmm. And uh, interesting note, it says this phrase reflects the custom in the ancient world of never looking directly in the eyes of a superior until, until told to do so. Mm -hmm. So that goes along with that presumption. Mm -hmm. you know? I thought it was yeah. interesting. It is. Um, you know, people look back. Um, on previous times and talk about, you know, oppression and all those different things. But uh, it was an honor society, uh, and we've, we've totally left that uh, behind, uh, for sure. And uh, one of the writers I'm, I was looking at, uh, I think, let's see who it is, I think it's Matthew Henry, um, but he speaks about, like, the danger of uh, false humility, <clears throat> because, you know, of course, our humility is never perfect, right? We find a way to, even in our humility, hope that we're going to be exalted, right? That we pursue humility uh, for... It's not wrong to live in a humble way in hopes of being exalted, but there's a way that you can manipulate that, right? Where you can say, you know, I'm just waiting on my time. I'm just waiting on my time, right? As if you, you know, can manipulate the Lord in that way. But he says here, um, this is not saying that we must pretend modesty and humility and make a strategy of it for the courting of honor. But therefore, we must be really modest and humble because God will put honor on such and so will men too, right? Um, 
Anything else? Um, I kind of see verses uh, 2, 3, and 4. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, 5, 2, 3, 4, and um, 5. And it's all related. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> They're all kind of like one thing is hidden, mm-hmm. and it comes forth whether it's the, the you know, uh, concealing a matter and the or a, uh, whatever, it's, it's, it's refined and it comes to light. Yep. I think in some ways the, the Old Testament, you know, the words too, the Old Testament was, the New Testament was concealed in the Old Testament and the and mm-hmm. New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, that kind of thing. And yeah. I think... That's God's, a paraphrase of what Augustine said. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he says... Uh, the New Testament is in the Old concealed, and the Old Testament is in the New revealed. Yeah. I mean, that's basically what you just said. Yeah, but. I mean, yeah. And uh, I, I see it as being, um, you know, God in his own time refined Israel, mm-hmm. refined Israel to the point where finally he brought forth Christ. Yes. No, that's a good imagery, and that, that kind of draws on... Like, because you, you take the immediate historical moment, and you have Solomon preparing his sons, right? But the overall picture is God preparing his people in general, right? Yeah. And that Proverbs is the book of wisdom, in, in a sense, the book of wisdom for the Old Testament, in order that when the fullness comes, the people might be able to apply the wisdom that's given there and live in the, the time of... That which is revealed. And I think now, now that the Christ has been revealed, Messiah was revealed. He's further refining the church. Sure. To go through it all. Yeah. I mean, as the first seven churches in Revelation talk about the different churches, mm-hmm. there's certainly a lot of refining going on there to say who's real and who. who what church is real and what church isn't. Sure. And I think in the end, you know, there's going to be a lot of church. Well, we don't know who, who's, which ones are going to stand which aren't, but there's a lot of us. Yeah, and there's, this, there's also this idea, not just in Proverbs, but in other stories in Scripture about how God moves his people from immaturity to maturity and coming to the book of Proverbs, being able to apply it is, is maturity. Basically, like living with this wisdom is uh, Christian maturity. And uh, you're talking about um, refining, as it were, uh, this long sentence in First Peter chapter 1. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible. Right? So you still got that refining image there, but this is something that doesn't need to be refined. Right? Our inheritance is incorruptible, but we're being brought to that, incorruptible and undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, you, verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith to salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, wherein you greatly rejoice, Though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations, so that this trial of your faith, 
being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Right? So that's drawing on, I think, all of what you were just saying. First Peter 1, verses uh, 3 to 7. There, so. Amen. Anything else? Yes. Yeah. Did you mess it up? And that way, if you did, you can apologize for the right motivation instead of saying, oh, no, 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 you were right. I didn't mean to. I didn't know I hurt your feelings. Mm-hmm. I didn't know I took your stuff. You know, but just be honest. Like, hey, I- I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And that way, you don't go forth and say, well, all these excuses and all this nonsense. And whenever it comes forth, and I'm in The shame remains. Yeah, one thing, and then I'll, I'll close, but in Matthew 5, where Jesus kind of extrapolates on this, um, have you ever noticed that he puts the burden on the person who knows that the other person is bothered? Right? Where he, he doesn't say, if you have something against your brother, he says in verse 23, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has anything against you, right? That kind of turns the tables, doesn't it? Right, because we're kind of, I mean, this is kind of my natural operating mindset. I don't have a problem. He's got a problem, right? But the Bible places it the other way around, where if you know someone has something against you, even if you don't have anything against them, you're supposed to go and reconcile with them. But anyway, yeah, let's pray. Our Lord, we... Uh,